Okay, let me welcome you to tonight's uh, roundtable discussion. My name is Arne Westard. I'm one of the two directors of LSE Ideas, the LSE Center for International Affairs, Strategy and Diplomacy. The topic for tonight is rising Asia in the world crisis. Now, of course, some people would be querying whether Asia is rising very much in the current crisis, so it might actually be rather on its way down together with the rest of us. The concept of nation rises, of course, the background for this discussion, what has been happening over the last half generation or so in terms of developments within that region that has put Asia as a whole um, within the center stage of the global economy to a much higher extent than what has happened for the past 400 years. And this is very much a starting point for the roundtable that we are having this evening. We want to look at the effects that the current global crisis will have on developments within Asia. And there are basically two versions of this, broadly speaking. There is one that's saying what we are seeing at the moment is a product of Asia's rise, in the sense that the fundaments for the development of the global economy have already shifted. And that the crisis, at least the, the basic causes for the crisis, are connected to this, the great shift in wealth and power from the West to the East. And then there is a very different school of thought, uh, which you find, I think, primarily within the region itself, that queries that, basically saying that the current crisis is a global capitalist crisis, which affects East Asia and the rest of Asia as much as it affects the rest of the world. But the fundamentals are more or less the same. Uh, this is a systemic crisis. It doesn't necessarily signify much in terms of developments within Asia itself or in the balance of power uh, in economic terms and perhaps also in political terms between Asia and the rest of the world. And of course, how these two broad trends then see the outcome of the crisis is of crucial importance in terms of understanding what the future will bring. Is this a global shift that will then be uh, reproduced in a maximum sense at the end of the crisis, or is this the integration of Asia into a troubled capitalist world economy? We're very lucky tonight to have with us, uh, hopefully, a little while, three key LSE uh, experts within this field who will discuss uh, the developments in East Asia and the rest of Asia uh, within the world crisis with me. Um, at the far left, not in any way indicating his position, but rather where he ended up here. Um, professor Danny Kwa, the um, head of the economics department, uh, professor of economics here at LSE, and the one who will be approaching this in terms of its broad economic implications for the area as a whole. Professor Chen Jian, who is currently the Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs at LSE Ideas, um, but when he's not doing that, um, he's the Michael J. Sack Chair of the History of U.S.-China Relations at Cornell University in the United States. We hope also soon to have with us Professor Atar Hussein, who is the Director of the Asia Research Center, uh, not least because Atar's perspectives are particularly important here. He will be looking, uh, I would think, primarily at the effect that this crisis has within uh, Asian economies, within Asian societies, and has spoken well about that here in the past. So, without more ado, let me t first turn to uh, Professor Kwa in terms of some general uh, observations with regard to rising Asia and the world crisis. We will do 
uh, brief introductions to begin with, and then we will take questions uh, from the audience. I've lost some questions from here, and we will have a roundtable debate. So, Danny, please. Thank you. If I may, I would like to sure. use the... Sure, of course. Uh, good evening. Although this is a roundtable panel discussion, I would like to, um, before we fully engage in that uh, debate, present to you some facts that might not be as well known in, um, in the wealth of discussion that we have had, all of us have had, on Asia and the world crisis. As Professor Westert has pointed out to you, there are basically two caricatures that you might want to think about Asia in the current world crisis. One is that of a deer caught in the headlights of a careening world economic crisis locomotive that's about to just blow it to pieces, or alternatively, that Asia itself might be a culpable agent, together with certain structural weaknesses in the world economy as, um, as a cause for this. Indeed, on the second of these, there's already much discussion among central bankers and policymakers uh, where there's talk of symmetric obligations, that the buildup of current account deficits and surpluses across the world's largest economies over the 20 year, over the last two decades, led to a so-called global savings glut that in turn reduced interest rates worldwide, leading uh, otherwise impoverished investment bankers in a mad race for yield, ever greater financial innovation that eventually unwound with Lehman Brothers and other large, um, other large phenomenon over the last 18 months. The alternative view is that Asia is buffeted by what's happening in the global economy and, and therefore to think about Asia rising in the world crisis is just an oxymoron, it's just a contradiction in terms. As befits, I think, an economist, I want to suggest to you that the picture is a little bit more complicated than either extreme, but to do that I have to tell you about some facts and I hope that we can then engage those facts in discussion. I will skip the usual discussion about, um, I'll skip the usual discussion about symmetric obligations and the evolving pattern of current account surpluses and deficits and jump into what might not be so familiar to us and that is that the world indeed, the world economy is indeed undergoing a profound change, a profound change that's not typically visible to us. So in this graph, I have mapped the world. I have mapped the world economy in its cities in particular. You see London. Um, you see London indicated in this chart. It's at you know, zero degrees longitude, some 50 degrees latitude. You see Moscow, you see Delhi, Beijing, Shanghai going eastwards. And you see the American cities, New York, San Francisco, Washington, DC. You see the large cities in the Southern Hemisphere, Rio de Janeiro and Cape Town. Okay. That is a map of the world. Play a game with me. Suppose that you imagine the world's economic activity in the 200 or so countries located on the large cities within each of these countries. Okay. So you have a map of the world that contains many more cities than I've been able to map here. And then you put an economic mass on each of these cities. 
you can map the global economy and ask what is the center of gravity for the world two and a half decades ago, quarter century ago, and you can ask how that has evolved in the last two and a half decades. How should then that make us think about Asia rising in the global crisis? Well, in this picture, the red dots towards the northern part of this picture highlight for you the economic center of gravity mapped onto a world that is flat. The center of gravity for the world economy in 1975 began near the tip of Iceland. Over the last two and a half decades, over the last quarter century, three decades, the world center of gravity shifted eastwards. It shifted eastwards inexorably so that between 1975 and 2004, the increasing mass of economic production in Beijing, Shanghai, Seoul, Japan, Southeast Asia had dug a hole for the world center of gravity so that it traversed one third of the radius of the world into the central core of Earth, moving eastwards. Okay. That this eastwards, this eastwards drift of the sequence of red dots is exactly the eastwards shift in the global economy's center of gravity mapped onto a flat world. What we're here this evening is trying to understand the implications of that as well as the reasons for that emergence. You can take this data and map it in Google Earth. And if you map it in Google Earth, the sequence of dots that, that you see begin a little bit between Iceland and Greenland and then shift eastwards across Greenwich Meridian, drilling its way ever closer to Beijing, Shanghai, and centers east. That is the shifting distribution of the global economy. That is one of the factors underlying the shifting patterns of trade across the world. And that's why we're trying to understand the implications of the international, changing international relations and international economy on this. Okay. What does, I would like us to engage in discussion on some of the causes of this and some of the not so obvious implications. But I, what I want to end with, having shown you these facts, is an optimism about how the world is going to evolve from here on out, even in the midst of the world economic crisis. A first thing to observe is that in previous economic downturns, the increasing mass of economic activity in China, India, and the rest of East and Southeast Asia means that previous episodes when the US economy has undergone, uh, has undergone serious downturn, those parts of emerging Asia have helped maintain and support the world economy. They have kept the world economy afloat. In 1991, when the US economy suffered a sh sharp downturn, East and Southeast Asia grew, measured in actual market exchange rates, 20 times what the decline in US economic activity turned out to be. China alone grew three times. China and India together, almost three and a half times. That pattern has been repeated now through various US economic downturns. Globalization, which I won't belabor, 
globalization naturally means that when there's a downturn in the U.S. economy and Western Europe, parts of the entire world will suffer the impact of that. But globalization is quite happy with clusters of trade and high economic activity emerging spontaneously that are relatively sheltered from the rest of the global economy. So here are some facts. As a fraction of Jap Japan's total trade that it undertakes with China has more than tripled in the last 15 years. Japan's trade with the United States reached a peak of 35% in the mid-1980s, but since then has declined every year so that the ratio is now only 15% of Japan's total trade. Japan's trade with China exceeded that with the United States for the first time ever in 2006, and those two lines have continued to separate. Same statements made about Korea. China itself trades a lot more with East and Southeast Asia, more than double what it does with East and Southeast Asia than it does with either the United States or the European Union. These facts, together with that shifting economic center of gravity that I illustrated for you, tell us that the world economy quite likely continues to be held afloat in trade and in production because of the shifting patterns, because of the shifting global patterns of economic production. So in conclusion, are these facts that I've told you long-term and secular so that they are not particularly relevant now? Well, here are some facts in real time, and here's where I conclude. China's crude oil imports hit a one-year high in March of this year. China's steel mills in the same month imported record amounts of iron ore in anticipation of a pickup in the coming months. Total bank loans in China rose 19% at the end of 2008 from 12 months before, probably the only national banking system that can continue to show an increase. In the first quarter of this year, China's banks extended $670 billion of new loans, as much as they had done for all of 2008. China's consumer, which has been criticized for not doing their job, well, China's car sales hit a record high in March 2009, a third consecutive monthly rise. You see these increases and expansions in economic activity, not just in China, but in those countries that I've highlighted for you, do most of their trade with China. Taiwan's exports have fallen through the floor this last year, but they rose sharply in March of 2009 for a single reason, China's expansion. Korea's exports by April of 2009 had risen three months in a row, up 44% from their figure at the beginning of the year. Korea's stock market is up 70% since last autumn. China's stock market is up over 50% since the beginning of the year and has continually risen since the announcement of the 4 trillion renminbi fiscal stimulus from last November. I've given you a very quick summary of what an economist interested in numbers looks at when we think about rising Asia in the midst of the current world economic crisis. I've tried to infect you with some of the same optimism that I think these numbers show. 
and I hope that we will be able to have a robust discussion based on these numbers and other facts like them. Thank you. Thank you very much, Professor Kwa. It's always good to start with the optimistic view uh, of developments as we will see them. And we certainly need a reasonable dose of optimism uh, in the current crisis. I'm going to explore some of the issues um, that Professor Kwa uh, dealt with in his introductory remarks uh, in a little while. We just want to run through some brief opening remarks from the other speakers here first. Uh, uh, Professor Chun, could I turn to you yes. next? For you? you could do it from here or up there, okay. depending on what you, yes. what you like. Ah, yes, a pattern has been set. Yes. Uh, I'm a historian. However, I also have the basic training to understand the meanings of numbers. And because I, when I'm listening to Professor Kwa, and I share his um, optimism, but from probably a historian's perspective. And let me emphasize uh, uh, three things which I would like to uh, begin. They are very different from uh, the specific numbers that are listed by Professor Kwa, but probably they also reflect some of the larger ideas that Professor Kwa has delivered. And the first, the concept of Asia's rise, and that is um, uh, from a historian's perspective, very much an important trend. But that does not begin in the post-Cold War era. That is a trend which actually was a reflection of the Cold War itself. In some of my previous discussions, especially in this space, I have discussed the Cold War's changing emphasis from the West to the East, especially in the 1960s and the 1970s indeed, it was because, among other things, the Chinese-American rapprochement, which followed the Chinese-Soviet split, that changed, transformed the essence of global Cold War, leading to some very fundamental transformations of China itself and also the entire world. And this was accompanied with the emergence of four little dragons, which all are members of East Asian community and in the background, actually at that time it was not in the background, it was a leading the trend was Japan's rise, the Japanese miracle. Indeed, in the entire distribution of international strength and influence and power, Asia already was occupying a much, much more important position in the process of the global Cold War. And that trend continued in the post-Cold War period especially with China's economic miracle. That is my first point. And is that related to today's situation? I believe so. And second, the water crisis. What is the nature of water crisis? This actually is a question from a historical perspective. To what extent we can believe that a capitalist modernity pre uh, presents the so pass toward development and fluidity and continuous uh, growth of economy. And uh, the end of global Cold War somehow have produced uh, such an impression that capitalist modernity is the only path toward uh, modernity or development. 
and especially with countries like China, become increasingly incorporated into global capitalism, and that notion has been further confirmed. Is that notion still correct? In a very general sense, I believe it is, because among other things, no one today, even China itself, is challenging capitalist modernity as the path toward development. China today is anything but communist. China today is very much following the principles and the practices of market capitalism. However, having said that, obviously, the end of the Cold War had produced the notion of end of history, which basically means that only one or two particular passes represented, especially by the strongest nation in the world, namely the United States, is regarded as the only way toward modernity and the only way that can lead to development. And this notion in practical political development has been greatly magnified by the new conservative thinking and the practice, especially in the United States, especially following the 911 crisis when the United States seems to have, seemed to have controlled both the absolute power in defining a discourse that is politically correct in the name of anti-terrorism. And also, in the same time, the United States seemed to have controlled almost all the important um, uh, instruments and uh, in terms of political discourse, in terms of inter definition of international norms and codes of behavior. And then what we see is that unilateral practice in American foreign policy has led to a disaster. And in the same time, world capitalism has also developed such an extraordinary sense of arrogance. And in the name that uh, the invisible, invisible hand is capable of correcting any mistakes, any things automatically by itself, as if Capitalism is a system which cannot and will not commit serious mistakes. But after all, no system can be immune of mistakes and even disastrous mistakes because system will have to be run by human being. And this is what we are seeing today as the global crisis. And then to talk about um, Professor Kwa does not, does not mention the meaning of the current situation. East Asia certainly is rising, and East Asia certainly is playing a very important role. In the same time, let's do not forget India, because for a very long time, the countries with the largest populations in the world, the two countries with the largest populations in the world, namely China and India, have presented seemingly different two patterns uh, toward their own choice of modernity. And they both have presented cases of successes in the past decades, especially in the past decade. And now, in the global crisis, both have presented their own ways of responding to the crisis, and especially in the case China, of China, as Professor Kwan has, uh, has mentioned, it's a, it seems that China has done better than many other countries. If I will not say it is the best because we still don't know, but it's better than many other countries. Therefore, there are two questions that emerge. What are the meanings of the rise of Asia? First, 
Is Asia the next global uh, leading force to replace even the force of the United States? And secondly, if that is indeed the case, I don't mean I agree to that that is the case, but if that were the case, which one, China or India, will become a more uh, useful and more desirable path toward particular uh, solutions of the challenge toward um, uh, the, facing the human race. And in the same time, of course, we still need to remember countries like Japan. And what is interesting in the current uh, world crisis is that on the one hand, it seems that Japan is facing tremendous uh, difficulties, especially because um, its export-oriented economy is really facing serious challenges. But on the other hand, it seems that everyone is interested in getting Japanese yen. And that is a, a, an indication of people's confidence in Japan and as reflected its currency as a force of representing some kind of steady values and opportunities. And to put all of these things together, and what the meaning is, does that mean Asia is indeed the next force of leading the world? At this point, I have some suspicion. And that is because I'm a historian. And reading China's situation, reading Indian's situation, and I appear China and India and other East Asian countries, including Japan, including Korea, including Taiwan, and with, say, the leading force in the world, the United States. Let me be very brief. Let me just throw out my argument. Somehow, the foundation of America global leadership is much more profound. Is this going to change to be replaced? History will tell. But for the moment, as a historian, I do not see the prospect that Asia will replace the United States to become the next world leader. Let me finish here. Thank you very much, Professor Chen. Lots to, to, to build on there in, in, in globalizing the East Asian crisis in a certain <laughs> way, or taking in other parts of Asia as well. Professor Rosen. I'll speak from here. And what I'd like to do is to complement what Professor Danny Kua said. He's painted a wonderful general picture and ended with an optimistic note. So I just want to go a step down and look at Asia and its component. Obviously, Asia is not a unified entity. It's composed of different parts. So generally, for example, Asia is divided geographically into East Asia. Southeast Asia, South Asia, and Central Asia, and Oceania, a specific island. I'll concentrate on just the three main elements, East Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia, and say that there are important differences. If we just look at the relative weight of these components in terms of population, at the moment, East Asia is by far the biggest of the three regions with something like over 43 or 42% of the population, followed by South Asia and about 38 to 37% of the population, and Southeast Asia accounts for the rest. 
If we ask the question, how would the balance change in 20 or 25 years' time? Relative Southeast Asia would, in terms of its relative weight, would remain more or less constant. South Asia will become the largest region, and Northeast Asia would become the second largest. And in fact, the trend will continue beyond those 20 years. So I think that the most, the other thing we have to see is that the rise of Asia and the spectacular growth rate has followed the historical pattern. So this has been happening for some time. If we start with the Japanese industrialization, Japan was already a major industrial and military power by the turn of the 20th century. So really that's, as Professor Chen Jian was pointed out, that is in the 60s and 70s, we see the spectacular rise of the four dragons. But the important point I'd like to emphasize is the four, dra four dragons, although their economic growth was impressive, were tiny in terms of population. That is, if you take the joint population of South Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, and Hong Kong, is slightly smaller than the population of the southern Chinese province of Guangdong. So really what starts to happen from the 80s is that the rapid economic growth in Asia moves to the more populated country, starting with middle-sized countries such as Thailand and then obviously China. So really in terms of, if we are concerned with the impact of growth on poverty, is really India and China, the rapid growth in these two countries which has the most significant effect. The two, as called Chin India, accounts for around 40% of the world population, and China's growth has led to the biggest change or reduction in poverty ever seen since history began. So that's really, and second thing that we are seeing repeat in case of what China has happened in China, also in Vietnam, and also is followed by India. The second thing I want to look at that is slightly stepped down, and what does the detailed picture look like? If we go back to the 50s and leave aside Japan, more or less we see a gray, underdeveloped world called Asia. That is when Gunnar Merdal wrote his Asian miracle. Asian drama. What we look at is that the rapid growth rate has gone together with increase in regional disparity in the major Asian countries. India does not look like an undifferentiated, underdeveloped country. Parts of India are doing extremely well and parts of India are lagging behind. We observe similar phenomena between coastal provinces of China and the interior provinces. So rapid growth has gone together with sort of much wider regional inequality within at least the larger of the countries. Between each of the three regions I've described, also disparity has increased, and in fact, most pronounced is in South Asia. So I point this out, that is, we have to consider its political and social context. So let me... <coughs> point to one very striking fact about India, what the uneven regional development of India has done. At the moment, India has in the north so-called the four six states. 
which lag behind in many of the social indicators. At present, they contain about 40% of India's poor. In 25 years' time, these four, six states will contain 80% of India's poor. So other impact of regional diversity is concentration, geographical concentration of poverty and underdevelopment within countries. And if you have a democratic country, it also raises implications. Because also so happens that is the regions of countries which are socially behind or lag behind in terms of social indicators also have a faster economic growth rate. So really is the de rapidly developing parts which have slow population growth and their relative weight in population is decreasing. So success is paradoxically brings out some negative aspect. Let me finally end with what's also happening is two important developments in Asia. One is rise in inequality. Both India and China have, China in particular recorded a spectacular decrease in poverty and that's the great achievement of the Chinese economic reform. But it has also gone together with a very dramatic and rapid rise in inequality. So China is started not as a very completely egalitarian society, but fairly egalitarian society now is almost reaching in terms of inequality, Latin American levels. It hasn't quite reached the Brazilian level, but it is certainly sort of high in terms of international level. We, we hear a similar story in India that is with rise in inequality. So I point out that is there's been decrease in poverty, but rise in inequality will also bring and bringing certain social and political tensions. Finally, let me end with one demographic fact which is striking about Asia, that's aging of the population. That is, aging of the population is a dominant demographic phenomena already in Northeast Asia. What we'll see in 15 or 20 years time, that is, the big and populous countries of Asia will also experience aging. So these are the countries which actually at the moment have very little by way of providing old age support. So there's a massive challenge of actually supporting the elderly population they will face in 15 to 20 years time. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Hussain. Just while you get your um, questions ready, I just wanted to do a very quick poll up here to see on this crucial question that came out of all three presentations, um, where will we end up in three to five years from now when one is starting to wriggle one's way out of this crisis? A lot of people now are saying five rather than three, but that's not the key point of our discussion. Where will Asia be? I mean, do you expect that at the end of the current crisis cycle that Asia will have a more prominent role in terms of global wealth and power in the biggest possible scale? Or do you think that this will mean a reduction of its role, a normalization back to, back to the previous patterns? So I can sort of see where the discussion was going from the presentations, but I just wanted 
uh, since we love this with, with predictions, and we, of course we'll be back here in about five years <laughs> and see what actually happens, to get people on record with regard to it. It's part of what the LSE is about, is to take some risks. <laughs> Professor Kwa. Um, <clears throat> I, I think I would be <clears throat> I would be thrown out of the of this lecture theatre for being hugely dishonest if I said anything but that Asia will be much more prominent, will have a much greater role in the world economy and world polity uh, in the next five, ten years. I think having said that, I don't have the historian's sharpness in trying to work out who is the leader mm. of the world. I think that the issues are much less discreet, um, much less zero-one, much less sharp. The issues are much more insidious and gradual. I think that there is no question that Asia will continue its rise and that it will, in the eyes of some, not everyone, but in the eyes of some, will rival the United States and the, the Western European um, complex as being a source for interesting ideas in culture and economics and in production in values. So you think that this is not just true in economic terms, also true in terms of, of hard and soft power? I yes, I think I am practically Marxist yes. in that practically. regard. I think that where economic power goes, um, issues such as culture, values uh, will follow. And I think we already see that in the, in the way Chinese and Korean and Indian movies have greater appreciation where we see a greater proliferation of music produced in the East. Uh, we see magazines. We see even smileys and emoticons that we use in email are now, uh, are now peppered with items that originated in the East. I think on every level, insidious and large, we will see ever-increasing prominence of, of the East and of Asian Professor Chen, will, will Asia come to overtake, not just in economic terms, but also in terms of movies and pop music and what young people want to listen to on their iPhones? You know, at least when I grew up, and uh, for my generation of Chinese, we never eat McDonald's, never went to Kentucky Fried Chickens. We never sang any kind of Western songs or play Western music go to China today, then you will find it's different. And let me just give a two levels of analysis here. One level of analysis is that if no very big crisis occur in either side of the formula, and what we will see, and I believe yes, definitely Asia's influence in every sense will increase. And this is not just because of economic power, that is also because in a very general sense, what really is the future of the human race? And obviously, capitalism, Western capitalism alone is not in a position to provide all the answers. But in the same time, let me also give another level of analysis. This is what I earlier mentioned. You know, I do not believe that Asia is in a position to replace the United States to become the world leader. And I'm not talking about the next five to 10 years. I'm talking about, say, my generation, and if I'm fortunate enough, I'm lucky enough, I probably will live to see the mid-21st century. So that is what I'm talking about. And um, 
if in that case, and what we see that the current world crisis reflects some of the very big problems of the capitalist system, especially in the United States. However, I must argue the fundamentals of American system remain very sound. In the same time, if you look at East Asia, especially uh, Asia, especially the two very large players, China and India, there are some very deep problems. In the case of China, it is, you know, I agree, you know, economics will bring about many changes, but in the same time, same Marxist view. Marxism also argues that superstructure at times will play decisive role as a reflection of economic status to determine the societal development. In this sense, you know, you just think about China. This is still a country which claims itself to be a communist country in, as its official ideology, but at the same time, it is anything but a communist. And how can this, that fundamental legitimacy be justified remains a very, very big challenge to the Chinese. And in the case of India, let us say, you know, so much of the pre-modern legacies are still there. What Arthur has just said is indeed a situation in which you do not find in China. In China, the revolution has successfully destroyed the pre-modern, many of the pre-modern legacies. China, it's both China's fortune, it boasts China's bless and China's curse in many senses, but at least it is not China's curse because China does not need to deal with the influence of, for example, the age-old gentry land ownership class as a barrier toward modernity. In comparison, you know, India is still dealing with those problems, and not to mention that in the future, India will not just facing the question of population aging, but of population overgrowth, mm. things like that. Will Asia with China and India facing those very fundamental problems and in not normal situation, because we don't know crisis erupt always beyond people's expectations, will they be able to continuously represent an Asia that is growing continuously? That is my question. Ending on a question is a bad idea, but it is interesting to note that Marxism is now very back in vogue, at least at the LSE. It may not be saying much. Um, we have the um, head of the um, economics department moving in towards Marxist interpretations. We have, we have Chen Jian with his stringent critique of Marxism in historical sense, now finding much of use in it to understand present day uh, developments. And then, of course, we still haven't heard from Professor Hussein <laughs> with regard to this. Arthur, what's, wh will Asia come out on top after the end of the crisis? Yeah, uh, I have the habit of unpacking questions. For me, Asia, when I think of Asia and international relations terms, I think of three folds. That is, these three folds being Japan, China, and India. So I think that I don't see in the near I think each of these countries, or certainly China and Asia, will gain in importance greatly. But I do not see them actually acting in concert. What we're actually seeing in Asia, I don't see is rivalry in the old historical sense. So there's not likely to be something like a world war. But on the other hand, we certainly see 
relative jockeying for regional position. In case of Japan and China, it's already obvious in case of economy. Second thing is that China and Japan, as Danny quite rightly pointed out, have moved, become much more dependent on each other economically. So economically, they're moved closer. At least in this post-Second World War Europe, economic integration went hand in hand with political integration of political understanding. In case of Japan and China, we see a slightly different development. That is, in fact, Japan, because of the rise of China, the political tension, at least in security mm -hmm. sense, have become more pronounced. And one tendency in Japan is, although Japan has less dependent on the United States in economic sense, has become probably much more dependent on the United States in security sense. So what I would like to suggest, the important development is that the economic relations between Asian countries have grown in importance. So if you look at the old order, the colonial or semi-colonial order, most of the trade was with the developed countries. Many of the countries in Asia just exported raw materials or various natural products to the metropolitan countries and imported manufactured goods. There's very little trade between Asian countries. What we've seen is the intra-Asian trade has grown very rapidly. So in the, as a result, things like trade pacts, understanding currency unions, have actually gained in importance and credibility which it didn't have. So, for example, now it is perfectly correct to talk about Asian free trade areas. So, what I'd like to suggest is that we are likely to see both cooperation and understanding, but also rivalry. I do not see that is the main poles in Asia always acting in concert. So, that's why question of Asia versus the United States doesn't make sense to, in my way of looking at it, because within the play between the dominant poles in Asia, United States will always be sort of joker in the pack. So in some sense, any rivalry would also bring in the United States. So I don't think there is the question of direct question of displacement in the United States. But as economic weight would show up and so I think in that sense, I'm a Marxist, and having written a book uh, called Marxist Capital and Capitalism today, I would like to say that yes, I mean, Asian countries individually become more important in economic relations. So um, I, I if, if, Marxist, if Marxists were given to say amen, I guess that's the point for <laughs> Danny. I, I wonder if I can come around sure. to the circle of ideas here. I think, the, Arne, the way you've, you posed the, the question, and that I think each of us tried our best to, to tackle it, you know, uh, cast for us mm. a view of the world that suggested that here was the United States. Yeah. What is the next stage of the natural evolution of world polity, of the world economy? And of course, you know, one, it might be useful at this point to reflect that this stage where the U.S. imperium was basically the only power in the world is a relatively brief part even of recent history. We have moved very quickly from a multipolarity in the world to extreme bipolar rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union. And only very recently have we transited to a world where the US imperium was the only game in town as it were. 
So I think we would actually be simply going back to a more natural state of affairs if we did move to the kind of multipolarity that sees a Japan, a China, and an India, each having its attractions, each having its fans and admirers, as it were. It's very interesting. Now, this is very much what you pick up within the region itself as well, and maybe first and foremost in China. Is this a, that this is a return to a more normal state of affairs? I mean, very often that term is being used. Um, much of the 20th century has been an exception. What is now happening is a return to the world, the way the world is supposed to work. Now, the problem with that is, of course, these kinds of predictions are based more on cultural self-perception in many cases than what they are on, on observable reality. But it's very interesting to see how this actually works within Asia itself. And if I'm not much wrong, I think the character of the current crisis uh, could come in to sustain that worldview and that perception even more strongly than the economic growth of the past half generation itself has done. But let, let us turn to the, to the audience for, for questions, and then we'll, we'll, we'll call up, up on our friends up here to, to, to respond to them. Please. Questions? Professor Lippert. One of the things which strikes me is the, the, that the United States is a sort of chameleon. Mm. It has the ability, which is almost unique, to turn itself into a version of Asia itself. Um, I remember, you know, when I was teaching European cultural history at Harvard a few years ago, a third of my course were, was, were women of East Asian origin. Well, if that's true of, you know, European cultural history at Harvard, God knows what mathematics at Stanford's like. Um, <laughs> and in that sense, you know, this is to bring out the nature of real, you know, empire at its greatest, which is that empire in the end is something which revolves around ideas, which is assimilationist, and which has a sort of you know, a, a vision for everyone. Mm. Uh, and I, I can't actually see any other power yet in the world mm. which could have that potential. Um, and after all, the United States is still, in geopolitical terms, the only power which, you know, borders on the two great world oceans. So there are, I mean, there are some fundamental things as well of a material sort, and then there is a sort of cultural, political superstructure as well. Mm. Thanks, sir. That's very good. Other questions or comments? I had always thought that Berlin had been the center of the Cold War. Uh, but, uh, Professor Chen Yen, um, if you think that it all changed with Nixon traveling to Beijing and meeting Mao, does it mean you're praising Mao Zedong's foreign policy? That is a question that struck to Professor Chen's heart, I can tell you that. Um, anyone else? Do, do you have a comment? Yeah, right, right at the end over there. Yeah, wait for the microphone. Yeah, please, sir. We keep hearing about the BRICS. Brazil, Russia, India, China. Do you feel that there could be more closely involvement between the United States and Europe with those four countries in the foreseeable future? And what could the possible outcome be? cross-fertilization of ideas, reaching some consensus, mm. specifically not just merely of the economic crisis, but the impending global crisis of climate change. 
Who would like to go first on this? Professor Chen, there was one directly to you on, on, on Chinese foreign policy. You know, there are two questions, two aspects probably I would like to say. One thing is that uh, as a, a China scholar, I really like any kind of China-centered argument because uh, isn't that the meaning of China, you know, the central kingdom? And especially during the Cold War period, and uh, yes, of course, of course, Berlin was the site of direct east-west confrontation, but uh, interestingly, no one could do anything across the Berlin Wall. And the Khrushchev tried to do something to change the border in between East and West Berlin, and he triggered the crisis. He ended up with building the wall. And uh, it was in East Asia, and China played a major role, really, not only to change the balance of power between the two contending sides, but also in changing the essence of the Cold War. Because when with China shifting side to the United States and the West, and you find there are more communists standing on the capitalist side than the communists standing on the communist side. How could the Cold War did not end with the collapse of international communism as a 20th century phenomenon? Having said that, but let me very briefly to relate this to the later stage and also responding to some of the questions. I do believe you know, economic figures matter. They matter tremendously, but at the same time, I agree completely. The United States is not just an economic giant. The United States is not just a blessed by the God or nature. As the only two ocean great power on the earth, the United States is also the power control that controls the power to make the mainstream discourse. And interestingly, not a single country in Asia, not China, not India, not Japan, not Korea, and I do not see any other country in the world, not Russia, not Brazil, who, which are in the position to produce a kind of counter discourse that is in the position to replace the American way of life as the, the um, not, a, not, a, not a, as the least flawed way of uh, toward modernity and conducting modernity. And this is why American power and American empire is so powerful. And uh, that, is not, that is not to say that China is not in the position, or India is not in the position to produce alternative you know, um, discourse. And actually, alternative discourse does not need to be a counter discourse. It certainly can be a compatible discourse, but also add more values and also in a very fundamental sense to remedy some of the fundamental problems of the American discourse. However, before doing that, let me, let me stop here. China and India had, both have major, major challenges to meet domestically. Can I pick up? Yeah, sure. Can I pick up the point about uh, BRICS and the United States and Western Europe? The, <coughs> the point that was made there was whether we are perhaps artificially and falsely playing up the potential difference and friendly antagonism between uh, the Brazil, Russia, India, China's of the world and US on the one hand and US and Western Europe on the other. And it's natural for us to want to cast the discussion in that way, I think, uh, because we're talking about you know, put it in stark terms, we're talking about change in world leadership. We're talking about a view of economic history where the United States and Western Europe 
controlled 50% of the world GDP to where there might be an overturning of that fraction. Um, but I do agree that costing it in that antagonistic terms is probably misleading. The last time there was a significant takeover of this kind was probably when the United Kingdom very peacefully handed over world economic and political leadership to the United States. It was a friendly takeover. Uh, in fact, you know, they spoke the same language. You might argue that there was a special relationship between them that continues to this day. The cultures are very similar. And when the BRICs do overtake the United States and Western Europe as a ratio of world GDP, it could well be the same kind of seamless transition. That what really matters are economic relations and you know cultures and values and other things that we discuss now will follow, but will follow in such a slow, gradual, insidious way, we won't even notice it. The same reason that most of the graduate students doing research in the United States now are actually not US born. Mm. They're from India, China, the rest of the world. There's a seamless transition of ideas, values, technological and scientific leadership that I think will be much more accurate to focus on than a confrontational antagonistic one. Mm. Professor Hussain. I think uh, come back to the, uh, complementing what I've been arguing, that is what the coming decades are likely to be see shifting alliances between multipolar worlds. To go back to the three polar image of Asia, if you look at each of these three, three poles, Japan, China, and India. Each of them have a special relationship with the United States. So, and that will still continue. And for example, their relations with the other are always in some sense intermediated or influenced by the United States. So I just strongly complement the point is that in this whole process of rise of Asia, United States itself would actually undergo a change. I mean, it is going a change in terms of the Asianization of the United States academia, mm. but also in terms of international politics. The United mm. States is not going to remain the same, and it would actually, is, is in terms of its alliances, is likely to undergo change. Mm. So we won't be able to pose a simple question saying whether the United States has declined in importance because you have to what you'll be confronted with is a mm. mutation in the United States itself. Mm. So could I, could I just follow up on, on that discussion and really go into what all three of you have been saying, especially to what Professor Kerr was saying. Um, and if you think about this in its broadest possible sense, I mean, if we agree, broadly speaking, at least in some form, this crisis is a major element in that shift in wealth of, and power from the West to the East, or indeed a changeover, uh, maybe more long-term, as Professor Chen has indicated, in terms of global hegemony, because it forces us back to think about the last time when that happened, which was during the interwar period. Uh, similar shifts, of course, have taken place before, very often accompanied uh, by major systemic crises in, in, in economic terms. And a lot of people have been asking about that, about that parallelity with regard to, with regard to the current crisis. That perhaps the situation that we are seeing today 
is at least in this particular sense similar to what we saw in the interwar period, that there is one leading power uh, that is shifting away from having the global predominance that it's had over the last two generations, maybe three generations, uh, the United States. But that there is no other power that is ready to take up that challenge, uh, leading to a period then presumed through this historical parallelism uh, of instability, uh, crisis, and, 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 and potential wars. Now, there are some people who have been saying with regard to China's behavior in the current crisis that there are fairly strong indications in an international setting that China is in no way ready to take up that international uh, uh, position. Uh, quite on the contrary, even if one compares to the crisis of 1997-1998 in, in Asia, uh, China in this particular crisis has been much more inward-looking, much less systemic in terms of its response. Uh, than what was the case ten, 10 years ago. It is not trying to position itself as, a, as the new global power with systemic responsibilities, uh, the way the United States eventually came out to be, uh, almost a generation after Britain ceded uh, that global position. So I wonder if you have any comments on that. It's a pretty negative scenario, but I'm here to provoke you. Mm. Professor Chan. Yeah, because of one thing, um, if you read the Chinese leaders' minds, and it's, it's just so obvious that the primary concern of them, it's not a global crisis. It's a, the impact of global crisis its meanings to China and China's own domestic problems. It's a China's a very, very large country and uh, the, the continuous development of Chinese economy has brought about profound societal changes and cultural changes, which have created all kinds of new scenarios Far, going far beyond the capacity of understanding and control of the regime in some senses. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, the main challenge that try, they try to deal with. And at the same time, and uh, this is also the, the, the water crisis actually is also a, a valuable learning opportunity for the Chinese. And the same is true for the United States. And to what extent policymakers and also the main players in the American system. The main players, by main players, I do not just mean politicians, not just mean military planners, but also those in the Wall Streets, those are who are in the technology world, in the universities, to what extent they can learn from it. This is a very, very important, and that is why it seems that we are all willing to give the Obama administration time for it to develop you know, its own strategies and American strategy to deal with this because this is so crucial. What, what lessons are there? You know, this is, I do not see for at the moment that the Americans have learned the true lessons. That's a warning signal. And then let me briefly respond to Professor Hussein's other talk about Chinese-American relations. You know, in a few years ago, when people talk about Chinese-American relations are in crisis, I'm the person who always argues there are so many shared interests between China and the United States. And I, I always try to argue that the prospect of China and the United States, especially after 911, I, I always try to argue against many other people that I think the prospect of Chinese-American relations was more and more, more optimistic than some other people. I do not believe, I never believed in the kind of notion of the coming conflict uh, between China and the United States. However, today, I have some concerns. 
you know, in the current situation because people talk about so many shared interests, but there's also for the first time, especially among American policy-making, decision-making elite, academic elite, I see a kind of rising concern of China replacing the United States. And China, what kind of Chinese America, it's a, you know, you talk about um, Indian, U.S. special relationship, Japan, U.S. special relationship, and about those kind of relationships are very different from China-U.S. special relationship, if there's indeed one. People are talking about the U.S.-China relationship as the most important bilateral relationships in the world. Mm. That's a kind of very dangerous scenario to deal with. The two countries, after all, are so different. If not for anything else, there are still things like the Taiwan question. You know, now it seems that Kuomintang, the, the government, is very much willing to develop the cross-street relations. But who knows? Because of the DPP could come back. And other kind of scenario could emerge. And indeed, among Taiwan people, there exists a sense of identity that is different from being a part of China, being Chinese. And that could lead to all kinds of uh, uh, problems, especially between China and the United States, because U.S. policy toward Taiwan was highly contradictory. On the one hand, it recognizes that China, uh, Taiwan is a part of China, and the government in Beijing is a sole legal government representing China. But on the other hand, there is a Taiwan Relations Act. The United States is selling weapons to Taiwan. The United States still takes defense of Taiwan as a, it's a mission. So that, uh, those kind of questions are still there. And with China's rise or with China going into kind of unforeseeable crisis in the future, what will that impact Chinese-American relations? We don't know. In comparison, U.S.-Indian relations, U.S.-Japanese-Japan relations are much, much more foreseeable and stable. Mm -hmm. I think um, maybe I need Maybe we need to shake up the discussion a bit because it seems that we've fallen into this love fest mm. of everyone agreeing with everybody else and how uh, you know, <laughs> the, the United States, <laughs> while the, you know, the numbers surrounding its economic performance are really grotesque, it's not really to blame that we can pretty much keep things as they are. So, so let so, me try, and, yes, shake, yes. Let me try well. and shake things up a bit <laughs> by suggesting that actually, although I might have you know, sat up here and said that um, you know, that as we segue from the current unipolar American imperium world to one that's flatter, that's more multipolar, uh, smoothly, it does not in any way imply that the current unipolar imperium is a satisfactory state of affairs. Mm. So let's cast our minds a little bit on the state of the global economy. Maybe not now, but two years ago. Two years ago, the United States was running a trade deficit of 9% of its GDP. Its current account deficit alone was larger than the total GDP of the billion people economy that is India. Today, it is quantitatively easing, printing money to buy all kinds of financial assets. Its fiscal spending has gone through the roof. Its government budget deficit will come in at perhaps 10% or more of GDP. If this were any other economy, oh well, wait, actually this has been other economies. Thailand on the 1st of July 1997 had pretty much the same kind of macroeconomic statistics. On the 2nd of July 1997, hmm. international financiers punished 
the Thai economy. The Thai baht fell by 50%, Thai GDP fell by 15%, a wave of economic disasters swept through mm. Southeast Asia on numbers that are, as a ratio of total GDP, pretty much what you see of the United States today, and in absolute terms, a tiny amount mm. of the imbalance that the U.S. economy has inflicted on the rest of the world. Now, how did we come to this state of affairs? How did we tolerate a 9% current account deficit built up over 20 years? It is not like the Queen said, nobody noticed. Mm. Everybody noticed. Mm. Policymakers, central bankers, academics, everybody noticed. But nobody thought it worthwhile to do anything about it. Because the world's largest surplus economies, China, Germany, the Gulf exporting countries, were quite happy to continue to run trade surpluses. There was nothing in any trade discussions that suggested that was a bad thing to do. The mirror side of that, the trade deficits were run a lot in the United States, some in the UK. Nobody decided to engage in a speculative run on the US currency. Why? Because the United States dollar is the world's reserve currency. You cannot engage in a speculative run on the world's reserve currency and hope to make money out of that. Nothing in that has changed. Nothing in that picture of the global economy has changed. If we continue to have the US as the prominent global economic, political, and social power, the US dollar will continue to be the world's reserve currency. There is nothing in any international financial architecture now that will correct that. And we will potentially, over the next 50 years, have a global economic <laughs> crisis every five years or so, just to shake things up and remind us that if we don't move away from this world, we will continue to have that. Mm. In light of that, it might well be that the move to a multipolar world, that China take over world leadership, should be wrenched, not argued over smoothly, but wrenched in some powerful, economically reverberating way from the United States. That's certainly a contrary perspective. Comes in, comes in useful. Arthur? Yeah, let, let me just bring in other, one aspect of the world leadership. One, one dimension of world leadership is a Chinese occupying sort of some of the top positions in international organization. And what we clearly see, for example, in the G20 meeting in London, China, instead of arguing well, certainly uh, supported the reorganization of IMF, but it did not argue a top position for the Chinese in the International Monetary Fund. What it argued that actually the present system appointment should change. So uh, having just returned from China and listened to a lot of Chinese talking about it, one thing that China really does not have enough people of wide international experience to actually mm. occupy top positions. Yeah. So even if the Chinese were offered the managing directorship of the IMF, they would be hard put to actually find people of such a sufficient international experience to actually mm. fill those positions. And this lack of weakness, the Chinese are extremely conscious of, and they actually shy away from immediately mm. sort of occupying such a top international position. And the parallel there, of course, in historical sense, would be what some people refer to as U.S. isolationism. I mean, in the sense that this is a power that is not ready to take over the mantle of international leadership and therefore shies away from it. 
We have time for one last quick round of questions. Yes, sir, over there. Uh, thank you. I know Professor Hussain just uh, touched on this, but uh, the impact on uh, international organizations and the architecture in the future, bearing in mind that UN, WTO, GATT, IMF were all structured 50-odd years ago by the Europeans and the Americans, so what the impact will be on, on the shape of those in the future. Mm -hmm. Dr. Rajak? Picking up on what uh, Professor Kwa was saying, that if, if the, um, the present crisis uh, leaves the, the system and the model intact, what we're looking forward to is just a repetition every five years. But does that mean that it is possible to, to, to get out of this crisis without changing the model and picking up on the Marxist uh, illusions earlier and that if this is not possible, that this in, in itself would create a totally different picture as what uh, Professor Weston said of instability that will then create a symbiosis of some kind that we are unaware at the moment where the powers that will appear would be China plus or whatever, uh, which is completely different to the discussion and, and what we talked up, up to now based on the existing model. Anyone else? Yes, in the center over there. Right, Liz, go ahead. Um, is it essential for China and India to deal with the uh, wealth distribution domestically before they can become economic and political powers? Mm -hmm. Professor Chen. Yeah, I would like to uh, uh, say something first in response to Professor Kwa's earlier provocative statement, and these are very thoughtful ideas. But let me, not necessarily in disagreement, but try to present some ideas from similar but not exactly same uh, perspectives. First about the origins of the current, current crisis. You know, people are not stupid. We all know that the United States is really using its position as a global leading power to take all kinds of advantages. But how, but the situation had been like that for quite a while. It's not until more recently that it has the condition for the current world crisis become nurtured. How did that come into being? That is a combination of several things. One is that, after all, Karl Marx's teaching about the capitalism, capital as greedy, as a bloodily greedy, turned out to be very correct in especially one sense. You know, what had brought the current crisis into its um, uh, outbreak is indeed the working of a not so large group of the brightest who by occupying the discourse of invisible hand will naturally correct all kinds of mistakes. And then they have produced a whole system which is uh, so simple, it's uh, self-serving. That is, they created a system of packaging and repackaging all kinds of financial products. We know that. And through packaging and repackaging, and you greatly in, uh, expand the volume of uh, capital in circulation. And it's through each process, they get a commission. And underlying this actually is the 
providing providers of fund, which China is one of them. But then, as a result, finally, what they have uh, 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 done is so simple that it is they gained all the uh, stage or, or uh, uh, projected profits into their own pocket uh, by accumulating all the kind of uh, risks and finally put risk on the entire world. Is China stupid? You know, you talk to the Chinese policymakers, they can't tell you what else can we do. Because with all the kind of trade surplus money, and where else can they invest their money? And the only thing they really can do is to buy U.S. bond. And even by uh, uh, ridiculed by the Americans, you know, you are really the source of creating our own problems because otherwise we people will not be able to produce the kind of low interest you know, loans However, in the final analysis, obviously that is not the Chinese fault. It's the fault of some of the agents of modern day capitalism. That's one thing. And secondly, the war in Iraq, which really has brought about almost all mice, vice of the American system into um, the, the central point because it has created such a huge financial deficit for the United States. And also, it had created an American image that is so contradictory to what should be held by the global leader. Uh, that is fundamentally undermining the moral foundation of American global leadership role. And the United States is yet to repair the kind of damage. But third, that is also extremely important. We cannot just say, you know, um, China actually had proposed something. The Chinese governor of the Chinese Central Bank, you know, Zhou Xiaochuan, already proposed before G20 a kind of international reserve currency beyond the control of any um, uh, sovereignty. And that is not really the Chinese policy proposal. It is almost a kind of test balloon, basically released for the purpose of testing to what extent the world will be responding to the Chinese proposal. And actually, under, un, behind the scene, there's a lot of favoring voices. But on the scene, on formal occasions, you find very little voice to support it. Uh, the reason is very, very simple. Because what we are talking about is not just uh, through a very simple agreement and then you change the dollar's global currency, reserve currency status. You're talking about a whole systematic, complicated shift, right, of, of the system. And it's, a, it's not easy to do. And in comparison, the current system, despite its huge flaw, is still um, is a, with its a, a beauty, a stability at one level. And in, in fact, the current crisis is reflecting some of the fundamental problems. And as a result, it may add to more stability to the system in the future. So in this sense, it's impossible for the same situation to come back under the five years, and the 20 years, and the 15 years, probably in the 20 years, 25 years. You know, that's not my historian's job to predict. Therefore, what we are seeing really is a dilemma, a series of very big dilemmas. It's a very easy for us to hear, to point out all the problems. But still, 
in terms of uh, the profoundness of comprehensive global power. So United States still is qualified to play the role in, among other things, to have the global, uh, uh, to the world reserve currency. Mm. And that's uh, probably the reason. Can we change this? Are we going, uh, should we change this? Probably yes. But can we change this? That's a very, very complicated question. And it's very, very difficult to answer. Okay, thank you. Uh, on the, the this, these are really interesting last set of questions. On the question of you know India-China fixing up its internal inequality problems, you know one of the things Arthur was very nice. He did, he said that you know the inequality in China has risen even as poverty reduction has actually occurred. And as you know the numbers that we know, China has reduced the number of people living in extreme poverty by over 627 million people in the last 25 years, more than the entire rest of the world has done, and perhaps more you know, the most significant change in human welfare uh, looking back over the last quarter of a century. And at the same time, he said that, well, inequality has risen. Well, well, actually, yes, of course, inequality has risen. It's risen from a level which was about the same as that in, in Belgium to a level about the same as Arthur pointed to Brazil and perhaps elsewhere. Well, what he didn't say is that it's now about the same level of inequality as in the United States. Mm. The United States now has, you know, and China have about the same level of inequality. Nobody, you know, yes, there are lots of problems that we point to now, but you know, the United States is expected to continue to grow in a way that's quite independent of the problems of inequality there. And part of the reason is that inequality is a social problem. It is something, inequality is a problem that exists only when society perceives it to be a problem. It's unlike poverty. I, sitting alone in a dark room, can feel I'm in a state of poverty or not, but in the same dark room, I cannot feel whether I am living in an equal society or, in, or an unequal society. So the question of perception matters greatly. In the United States, the United US society tolerates the high inequality that it, does, that it has because there's a perception of mobility. There's a perception that if you work hard, you can move up the distribution of income. Now it turns out the facts are actually not quite consistent with that. Depending on how you slice the facts, there might even be there might be higher mobility in Western Europe than in the United States. But nonetheless, it is the perception that matters. What China and India need to do is to shift that perception. Inequality by itself is not a problem, but if it's perceived to be a problem, then what you need to do is to shift the perception of that problem by fostering institutions that allow social mobility. And it is that rather than inequality that is the problem. On the, the question of getting out of or coming back to the global economic crisis, while I'm optimistic on many other fronts about Asia, about the global economy and elsewhere, I'm not as optimistic as Professor Chen, I think. I think that we, unless we really fix international financial architecture, there is every possibility that we're gonna come back five, 10 years from now in exactly the same situation of global imbalance and global economic crisis. This, it seems to me, is a problem of first order and is something that only global governance and international relations can tackle. Thank you. Very, very quickly. Yeah, very, a very quick one. Yeah, mm -hmm. talk about inequality and it's a difference between the inequality challenge facing China and facing India and facing other countries is that 
China in name is still a communist country, a socialist country. The legitimacy of that regime is based upon the total negation of inequality as a legal or legitimate situation in, in the society. Therefore, the inequality issue for China is not just a social issue, it is also a legitimacy issue. And that is why it is more serious in the case of China than in other societies and countries. Yeah, just uh, reinforcing the point by Professor Chen Jian, that is, in China, inequality has increased, but also what makes it socially explosive, and this is actually perceived by the Chinese leadership, is the general perception and belief that the income and wealth at the top end are usually acquired through illegal or irregular means. So this is really what actually makes it an explosive mixture. That is, inequality which is acceptable has to be justified in terms of you know, work and whatever. When it's acquired through Ill irregular means, then it actually becomes, has a very different impact on perception. Mm. And coming back to the question of really, well, I think I've, I agree with Danny Kua, that is what the world needs is a complete overhaul of the financial architecture. I don't think it's the, it's the invisible hand which is actually responsible over, uh, for, for the present crisis or the belief in invisible hand. Actually, it's more better to call it the grabbing hand, and which was very clear. That, that's what it's like you want to say. Yes. And so I think the world would actually come back to the similar crisis of similar proportion if it does not create a di different architecture of financial regulation. And for one last question about India and China. There is something very special about India and China as major economic power. In, if you look at past history, the rise of economic power, power or power for countries actually proceeded with high per capita income. So in fact, the countries which actually gained in economic stature were also in individual sense, relatively rich countries. What we observe in India and China is because of their population, they actually become big economic power, but in terms of per capita income, China especially, and in particular India, still remains a relatively poor country. So it's the combination of underdevelopment or relative underdevelopment and relatively low income with the economic stature at the, in terms of, because of its huge population, mm. which gives very special characteristic to the rise of India and China. Mm. Mm. The um, question of stability and instability reminds me a little bit of, of this graph that Neil Ferguson was showing when he did his lecture here um, last autumn, um, where he showed that month for month over the past 10 years, actually the past 11 years, um, the Chinese savings rate has been following the American uh, consumption rate in terms of its growth, almost point by point, month for month. Now, this is clearly something that is unsustainable. Right? It's, it's, it's a global structure, and this I feel myself on a pretty safe ground to say, that it's something that it's very unlikely can persist into the future. Uh, at least we do not have any other examples of that kind of structure persisting. So that degree of instability 
uh, is certainly something that I want everyone to carry with them from the discussion here tonight. I think we have been very lucky. Uh, this is the LSE at its very best. We have three experts from three different fields of study, from the three different parts of the Asian continent, who have been here uh, to give us their views of rising Asia in the world crisis. Undoubtedly, this is a topic that we will return to in the form of uh, further LSE ideas, roundtables, or in other terms of discussion uh, around the school. We're very interested in coming back here in about a year's time and see how this crisis, which I must say I believe we're still at the, in the beginning phase of, has turned out for the Asian economies and the, for, the, for the polities that they represent. But for tonight, let me thank our three speakers, Professor Rata Hussein, Professor Daniqua, and Professor Chen Jian, very much on behalf of all of us. Thank you so much. Thank you.